This morning, we continue our sermon series on the Psalms. You'll remember that we began that with a look at Psalm 1, the very beginning of the Psalter, and we looked at the way things should be, the way things are when we are right with God. And then the next week, we took a look at Psalm 74, that Psalm of Laments, and we were encouraged to say that it's okay to say to God, when you're discouraged, God, take your hands out of your pocket. We turn next to Psalm 88, the darkest of the Psalms. And then today, we come to Psalm 32, which has some of that darkness in it, but we also begin to turn the corner with this Psalm. Before we read that, let us turn to the prayer for illumination that we find in the order of worship. And we'll read this, pray this responsibly, words that come from Psalm 119. Lord, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your book. For your word is a lamp to my feet and a light on my path. Lord, open my heart that your truth would be my joy and my delight. For your word is a lamp to my feet and a light on my path. Lord, open my mind that you would show me the way to live. For your word is a lamp to my feet and a light on my path. Guide me by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Our reading this morning is from Psalm 32. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 867. Psalm 32. <clears throat> there we read, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin." Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bits and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
A local church is having what they call a testimony night. One friend sees, sees it posted on social media. Another one hears about it from a relative. The featured speaker will be portraying King David. We should go, the one friend says to another. It would be great to hear the experiences of one of Israel's greatest leaders told in first-person point of view, no less. They continue the conversation, reflecting on stories they might hear that night. How God surprisingly chooses David as leader of Israel, even though he is not the oldest son in the family. For God, of course, looks at the hearts and not at outward appearances. How David, as a musician, uses his God-given gifts to soothe the troubled soul of Saul by playing his lyre. How David, as a shepherd, kills bears and lions with the strength God provides to protect his father's sheep. How David defeats Goliath, the giant, with just the use of a slingshot, and how David, led by the Holy Spirit, crafts the most famous song in the Psalter, Psalm 23. The two friends arrive at church, and the place is packed. They scramble to squeeze into one of the pews, just as one of the ministers who appears to be serving as the liturgist steps forward and the, the chatter in the crowd begins to settle down. He looks out at the audience and he offers these words. Oh, what joy! What blessedness for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is covered and put out of sight. Yes, what joy, what blessedness for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. But, he says, when lives are not lived in that way, he suddenly steps down from the microphone and the main speaker, the one all have come to hear that night, the one portraying King David, steps up to the platform. He's right, he says, that was me. When I kept quiet about what I had done wrong, I was miserable. My friends heard me moaning and groaning and knew something was not right. For day and night, I was tormented by the thought that there was something that had come between me and the master of the universe. I could feel his hand heavy upon me and it haunted me so much that my strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. 
The audience squirms a bit in the pews, and one of those friends nudges the other and expresses probably the thoughts of others who are gathered in the church that night. What a downer, he whispers. We came here tonight to hear about sin. That topic that makes that audience uncomfortable is one that makes many people uncomfortable. Often people don't like to talk or think about the things they do wrong. Just keep quiet, people think. It will eventually go away. It's my business and no one else's. And those feelings are shared by people not just outside the church, but also often by people inside the church. We heard about this last fall in a series on worship we did here at LaGrave as we examined the different elements that comprise our Sunday morning liturgy. In a sermon on confession, Pastor Yonker noted how that element has gradually disappeared from many worship services, including those in our own Reformed circles. Focusing on sin just brings us down, some people say. We don't need that. We need things that will lift us up and make us happy. Others argue that the place for confessing sins is not in Sunday worship, that it belongs only in our personal devotional times. Several commentators, however, believe that Psalm 32 was actually used often in Old Testament worship, in temple worship, and, yet, and it is also an example for us today. Why is it, though, we hold back when it comes to confessing our sins? Certainly, pride is a factor. Sometimes we just don't want to admit that we're wrong. Some of you remember or have heard of President Nixon and the Watergate scandal that happened back in the 1970s when a group of burglars broke into the Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate complex. Eventually, it led to the president resigning. But that incident alone is not what drove the president from office. No, his demise came because he attempted to cover up his own involvement in the fiasco. It was his unwillingness to admit his own guilt that really brought him down. And if we are unwilling to confess our sins then we may feel as David does in verses 3 and 4 of our text. When he uses the analogy of the almost intolerable summer heat in Palestine, where temperatures go up and wells go down, and dust almost chokes a person's palate. David 
seems like almost as if he is being choked by his silence, for there is drought in his soul. Guilt can also be a problem when we allow it to overwhelm us and lead us into a feeling of despair. We don't confess our sins because we don't believe that God could possibly forgive us, especially when our sins seem so large, so extreme, or so severe. Psychologists note that guilt is one of the most crippling diseases among people and is a major cause of mental illness and suicide and depression. It prompts millions of Americans to gulp down pills to try to tranquilize their anxiety. A study back in 1991 discovered that the average person spends approximately two hours every day feeling guilty. And for 39 minutes of that time, people feel moderate to extreme guilt. Can you imagine what those numbers must be today with the rise of mental illness? Before we beat guilt up too much, though, let's remember that guilt can be constructive at times. God can use it like an electric fence that gives us a jolt when we are about to stray beyond his boundaries. He uses it as an alarm to wake us up when something needs our attention. Like pain, guilt can tell us that something is wrong. When you get that feeling, though, you shouldn't just sit there. You should do something about it. That's what David does following his testimony in verses 3 and 4. After feeling that his bones are wasting away and that God's hand is heavy upon him, David, led by God's Holy Spirit, does something about it. The turning point begins at verse 5. Then, David says, then I confess my sins to you, God, and I stopped trying to cover up my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to you, Lord, and you, you, my merciful Lord, forgave my sins and took away my guilt. The first step to finding relief from the weight of our guilt, as David discovers, is to admit the wrongs we have done, a strategy that is often used by support groups that meet today. Their members begin by saying, Hello, my name is, and I am an alcoholic. In this passage, in essence, we hear the words, Hello, my name is David, and I'm a sinner. For what misdeed is David unloading his burden? 
We don't know for sure. But some commentators believe that this psalm, like Psalm 51, was written in response for the guilt for committing adultery with Bathsheba and trying to cover up it by having her husband Uriah killed. Now, while we don't know David's exact sin, we do know the exact way that confession affects his life. David is a new man. He is now like the one described in verses 1 and 2. How joyful, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the one the Lord does not charge with sin and who lives in complete honesty. David is now enjoying a blessed joy and happiness, happiness that God gives to all who confess their sins and who are forgiven by him. Do you see the wordplay that happens in this? David no longer covers his sins, that's verse 5, but he confesses them to God. So God covers his sins, verse 1, by his mercy and grace. It's the same Hebrew word, kasah, that is used to help describe this joyous transformation. I don't know if President Nixon ever found the happiness that David experienced. He did accept President Ford's full pardon on September 8, 1974. And while accepting a pardon does mean an acceptance of guilt, Nixon did so not necessarily because he wanted to, but because he was advised to do so because it would bring an end to his legal ongoing troubles. One of the people involved in the Watergate scandal that did admit his guilt was Chuck Colson. An ex-Marine lawyer, Colson became special counsel to the president, a position where Nixon would call on him at all hours. It was a position of prestige and power, a position that should have brought him great satisfaction. Yet for Chuck Colson, there was still an emptiness in his life, an emptiness that became even worse as the Watergate scandal began to unfold. In August of 1973, Colson's friend, Tom Phillips, brought him a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And he pointed out to him a passage on pride. It cut Chuck to the heart. And as his daughter said in an interview sometime later, the Holy Spirit touched my dad at that moment, for that is when he encountered God. When Colson was convicted of obstruction of justice for his role in Watergate, 
he was given a backdoor offer where they would cut him a deal instead of him having to serve his one to three one to three year prison sentence. Colson turned it down, however, and admitted his guilt. I have committed my life to Jesus Christ, he said, and I can work for the Lord in prison as well as out of prison. The media had a field day with this, mocking him left and right, but he was undeterred. The words from Chuck Colson may have been slightly different, but the message is the same. I confess my sins and stop trying to hide my guilt, and you, God, forgave me. All my guilt is gone. If you know Chuck Colson's story, you know that he served God faithfully during those months in prison, including starting Bible studies and caring deeply for his fellow prisoners, which included mafia informants and former leaders from the Nixon administration. Following his release from prison, Chuck received many offers from companies and businesses who wanted him to come work for him. But he couldn't get those prisoners out of his mind. This eventually led him to form Prison Fellowship, a far-reaching, successful ministry to prisoners that continues to this day. And all of this because he did not hesitate to admit his guilt. If I were to ask you what you would do if you were on an empty tank and a gas station was right beside you, what would you do if you were starving and there was a refrigerator full of food in the next room? What would you do if your insulin level was running dangerously low and the needle was sitting right beside you on the table? Hopefully, in each of these situations, you would not fail to act, nor should we in our spiritual lives. If you are troubled in your faith because of some past act or some questionable thought, some unkind word, listen to the Holy Spirit prompting. For in verse 6 of this psalm, we are urged to not delay our confession to God. Listen to these words from that verse. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you, Lord, that they may not drown from the surging floodwaters or from the dangers and judgment that threaten their lives. And may they do so while you can be found, while there is still time. God is saying to all of us today, don't hide your sin. 
and don't delay in doing so. Instead, as we read in verse 7 of the text, let him be your hiding place, your shelter, so that he can assure you and surround you with songs of deliverance and songs of victory. Let him cover your sins. There have been, of course, many cover-ups that have happened throughout history. Times like Watergate where information was hidden and not disclosed. Time where the truth was not made known. But the greatest cover-up of all time was not when truth was hidden, but when truth was revealed. When Jesus Christ, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, came into this world to become the sacrificial lamb, to die on the cross, and to shed his blood for you and for me. Blood that is enough to cover all of our sins. That, dear friends, is not a downer. That is good news. That is a reason to rejoice. That is a reason to be glad. Thanks be to God. Having those thoughts in our minds and on our hearts, and knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, I invite you to join me in confession, in a prayer of confession. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. We need your mercy and your grace to cover them completely. For we have done things we should not have done, and we have left undone things we should have done. Father, hear us as we lay before you now our specific sins in silent prayer. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayer. We ask it all in the name of Jesus, the one whose blood was shed to cover all our sins. Amen. Hear these words of assurance, the assurance that we are a forgiven people, which come, no surprise, from Psalm 32. Then I acknowledge my sin to the Lord, and he forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart.